Amen. You may be seated. Amen. You can open your Bibles, please, to Judges 14. And if you have not been with us in the last while, we've been walking our way through the book of Judges. And uh, if you would be uh, kind enough to follow along in a pew Bible, that would be great. And if uh, not, you probably have a Bible on your phone or scroll through it somehow, some way. It'd be great if you followed along as I read. And, and uh, I'll start reading here from verse 1. And Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for how clear it is. We thank you that in it there is everything we need for life and godliness. And we pray as the scripture goes forward this morning, Lord, that we indeed would live in a way that honors you through obedience to your word and pray that we have a heart to do that because of all that Christ has done for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Uh, Judges 14, verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's right in my eye. She is right in my eyes. Her father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought thirty companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I'll give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, Put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. 
Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You've put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that, the feast la- that their feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Now, as we continue in our story, the book of Judges, or narrative of the book of Judges, we're now looking at probably the most familiar judge in all of the book. He's the most colorful. uh, He's the most interesting, uh, clearly the most outlandish. And along with that, we'll find out eventually the most tragic. I mean, his life began with such great expectations. Uh, We saw last week that his conception was miraculous. And if you weren't able to be here for last week's sermon, you would be able to listen to it online and get caught up. In chapter 13, verse 3, it states, The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children. But you shall conceive and bear a son. And we know that Samson wasn't just any son. His miraculous birth was for the purpose of beginning to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And the baby to be born was supposed to follow the laws of a Nazarite. We read that from Numbers chapter 6. A Nazarite was one who was set apart for God's service for his whole life. So even while Samson was in, in her womb, Manoah's wife had to be careful that she kept her son from breaking the vow he was born under. Now remember the rules and the regulations of those who are under this Nazarite vow had to follow. We noted there were four specific things. They had to avoid wine or any grape products. They had to not have their hair cut ever not be around any dead things, dead people or things, and then fourthly, remain ceremonially clean. Manoah's wife, even while Samson was in her womb, had to be careful of avoiding both wine and any product from grapes, even dried grapes. She couldn't even eat raisins. And she couldn't come close to anybody who died, even if it happened to be one of her parents. The haircut that Samson Uh, was never to have, obviously, wouldn't have been a problem while he was in her womb. But when he's one, two, four, five, 15, 17, never cut his hair. Now, apparently, over the course of time, if a man's hair is never cut, it can grow to half his body length. I Googled that. I know that you 
if you're 12 to 25, you impressed you that I said that. I Googled that, and I found out that a man's hair, if it's never cut, can grow up to three feet. So Samson's hair would have been very visible, and surely everybody in the little town would wonder why his hair was so long. And I'm certain that Manoah's wife would have said over and over again, my son is a Nazarite, separated from God, and I cannot cut his hair. And the point I'm making is it's not only in the womb that Manoah and his wife had to help Samson maintain his vow. They would have been highly involved in every aspect of his life, especially in the early years. They had to continue to talk to him and remind him and tell him about his vow, why he could not eat grapes, why he couldn't eat raisins, why he couldn't be around anything that was dead, why he never had his hair cut. They had to remind him of these things and remind him also of his miraculous birth and how God had chosen him to deliver the nation of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And we saw last week they've been in bondage to them for 40 years. So we would say then he was raised in a Christian home, raised with believing parents, raised with parents who are faithful to worship God, parents who are faithful to attend church, fellowship with God's people, and faithful to pass on truth to their sons. God had called him, God had picked him through no desire of his own, through no merit of his own, through no goodness of his own. Before he was ever born, he was chosen to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And what we're going to see as we study the next few chapters of Judges is that Samson really is a mirror or a type of the nation of Israel. His life as a judge is almost identical to how the nation of Israel has acted throughout the entire book. Israel in the book of Judges, we know, in Judges 1 and 2, had a great beginning. But it didn't take long for them to reject God. And, to, and, and, and even though they rejected him and even they began to serve false gods, God still delivered them over and over and over, even in their sin. We know Samson had a great beginning, and very quickly, as an adult, he's going to reject his vow. He will reject his upbringing. He will reject God, and God will still deliver him. Samson's story is the longest in the book of Judges, and by the time we get to the end, we will grieve over his tragic life, but we'll also see the grace and the mercy that, that when he dies, finally fulfilling what God called him to do, and Hebrews 11 tells us he's a man of faith. So by the time we're finished, it'll probably be four or five sermons from beginning to end, but all of those sermons are actually one large sermon, one long sermon, and we can't get to the grand finale until the very, very end, but we'll get there eventually. So like the nation of Israel, Samson started with great hope. We see that in the last two verses of chapter 13. Go ahead and look there for a moment, verse 24 and 25. We know the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Menehadon between Zorah and Ashtol. Now what that means is the Spirit of God is working in his life to prepare him to deliver the nation like Gideon delivered the nation, like Barak delivered the nation, like Jephthah delivered the nation. And chapter 14 picks up the narrative when Samson is old enough to get married. 
The author of the book wastes no time showing us that Samson has no regard for God. He has no regard for his vow, no regard for his calling, and no regard even for his parents. We know this by his choice in marriage, his attraction to what's forbidden, his disobedience, and his no concern at all for being unclean as he's around a dead carcass. And yet, the overall truth, the big picture instruction, what God does not want us to miss is that God, though not the author of sin, uses sinful men and women for his glory and to accomplish his good purposes. I'm going to say that again because this is where we're going to land by the end of the sermon. God, though not the author of sin, uses sinful men and women for his glory and to accomplish his good purposes. I want to begin by just noticing the location where Samson is going. It's such an important part of the story. The author tells us five times in the first five verses that Samson is going to Timnah. Twice in verse 1, once in verse 2, and twice in verse 5. Now, the reason it's significant is because Timnah is known for its vineyards. It was a, and it was a Philistine town. Verse 5 states, they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And verse 1 states that he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines in Timnah. Wine and women go hand in hand. And soon we'll have Samson create a song. Therefore, the sermon titled today, Wine, Women, and Song. Now, if I told you, if I told you I was going to the great state of California, which I was born in California, I love to rub it in to all the people that don't like that. And if I told you that w my wife and I were going to go visit Napa, you would immediately assume we're going to go in there to drink and taste wine. Because what? Napa is known for its wine. It's known for its grapes. Scripture does not forbid drinking wine in moderation. It forbids drunkenness. It's also wrong to flaunt your freedom to drink in front of someone who struggles with alcohol, who you might cause to stumble. We should never use our freedoms in front of others who might be drawn to sin because of us. We don't want to be the cause of someone stumbling. Now, this is an entirely different subject, and I want to at least mention that because it's worth noting. But if you're a Nazarite and you live a life are called on to live a life separate from the pleasures of the world, a life dedicated to God, you are not free to drink wine at all. And because of the regulations for a person under this vow are so clear in regards to grapes, you are not to have anything from the grape, whether fermented or not. So why are you tempting yourself by going on a wine tour? Why are you hanging out in places like Timnah, where you're surrounded by what's forbidden to you. Oh, I just like the grape harvest. Oh, I just like to see the beautiful vineyards. Oh, I just love the atmosphere. I mean, common sense tells us that you should not put yourself in situations where you'll be tempted, but more than common sense, the scripture commands us over and over and over to flee certain things, avoid certain things, Run from certain things. And the example Jesus gives, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. 
If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. We have to die to it. You can't die to it if you're flirting with it. You can't die to it if you're walking toward it and putting yourselves in places where it's all around you. I mean, men and women, men and women who struggle with lust, who may have no victory over pornography and impurity, you put yourselves in places of temptation when you're sitting in front of any screen by yourself. I, have, I know someone personally who came to the place where, where his wife has the password to his computer, and they work together on that to help him remain pure. I know of someone else who came to the place where his wife asked him some point-blank questions of some of the things he was involved in, and he admitted that he had viewed pornography. It devastated her. And, and over time, as he rebuilt his relationship with his wife and began fighting the temptation, for the next 10 years, he never watched TV by himself. See, when you give sin an inch, it always takes a mile. And it starts by putting yourself in the path of temptation. There's a country song that has a chorus that I won't try to sing it because I wouldn't do very well. But here's, the, here's the, the chorus. Lead me not into temptation. I already know the road all too well. Lead me not into temptation. I can find it all by myself. This is an indictment on us. An indictment on our hearts. And the truth is we all do know it too well. When the mom or dad tells his teenager, don't go swimming, and he leaves his house knowing he shouldn't, knowing he won't, but he brings his bathing suit just in case, he's already planning on disobeying. When the teenage couple, the unmarried couple, the engaged couple, they know when they're alone at night, they stumble in the moral realm, and they continue to plan outings at night alone, no chaperone. They're not fighting. They're planning because their hearts are drawn to sin. We have to flee sin. We have to run from it, not toward it. Samson, though under a Nazarite vow, was going exactly where he wanted to go, to the vineyards of Timnah. And the text doesn't even have to tell us that he violated his vow. It's a given. When you're in a vineyard, you drink of the vine. Now, a second reason why the location is so important is because it's a Philistine town. Remember, God's purposes in Samson's life was that he would begin to deliver the Israelites from the hand of the Philistines. And if Samson was going to keep his Nazarite vow and fulfill his calling, he wouldn't be going to Philistine territory to drink wine. He'd be going there to devise a plan. He'd be going there to begin to deliver the people. He'd be, he'd be going there to fulfill his calling. It was back in chapter 13, verse 5, where he was called to begin to deliver the nation from the hand of the Philistines, and instead he's surrounded by grapes. And what we see next is that instead of fighting the Philistines, he wants to join them. According to verse 1, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. In verse 2, he told his dad, get her for me as a wife. Now, the scripture is clear. We've seen this before in Deuteronomy 7, that those in the nation of Israel, 
God's chosen people were not to intermarry with Canaanite nations. So their heart would not be turned to their false gods. We already saw his contempt for the Nazarite vow by his journey into territory where everything that, that the vow commanded would be all around him. And now we see his contempt and, and his disregard to God's word with his immediate attachment to a woman that he would have been forbidden to marry. He, he just said, I like her dad, get her for me. Now, the command to not marry foreign women or women outside of Israel was not a command against mixing races. It wasn't physical, it was spiritual. Moses had an Ethiopian wife. Boaz married Ruth, a Moabite. So it's not about race or ethnicity. It's about spiritual oneness. In other words, believers are only to marry believers. And this certainly is carried over into the New Testament. Go ahead and turn there for a minute to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 so you can read it for yourself. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and I'll just read from verse 14 without even setting a context. Old Testament command to not marry somebody who's outside the faith. Uh, New Testament reiteration with 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, where Paul tells us, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And of course, the answer to all those questions is absolutely none. New Testament truth carried over from the Old Testament command. And you and I know, you and I know that when a Christian marries a non-Christian, when a believer marries an unbeliever, even though he or she was really nice, even though he or she was not opposed to church and not opposed to the gospel, even though the Christian in the relationship desperately wanted to see the person they loved come to faith in Christ, we all know in nearly every case there is a severe spiritual decline. The unbeliever nearly always influences the believer, never the ever, hardly ever the other way around. And when Samson asked his father to get the cute Philistine girl for him as a wife, verse 5 tells us the only reason is she is right in my eyes. When Samson pushes this, he is completely wrong. He is violating God's word. And his parents who raised him in the Lord know this. Do you see their plea in verse 3? But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? Samson, she's not an Israelite. Samson, this is wrong. Samson, this is forbidden. Samson, she's not a Christian. Samson, the Bible declares it's wrong. And they're right to ask all these questions as, as their son is making this choice. They're right to attempt to direct them toward marrying someone from the covenant family of Israel. And you as parents, we as parents, 
We have got to understand. I'm super grateful for all the families who are here today because I'm so glad you're going to hear this. One of the last decisions that you will be involved with, with your children as they're under your roof, will be, by God's grace, in the choice of who they marry. We all know that apart, that apart from following Christ, the single most important decision anyone will ever make is who you will spend the rest of your life with. So start early by telling and teaching your Christian children that they are commanded to marry in the Lord. And it's your parental responsibility to oversee that, to encourage it, to counsel it, to direct it. Look for people who are seeking Christ. Look for those who are faithful. And start praying for them now. The reason Samson didn't care was because he wasn't seeking God. In his own heart, he wasn't following the Lord. So he naturally didn't care who he married. When you young people are drawn to those who are not believers, it's a hard issue for you as well. You will not be drawn to someone who's seeking Christ unless you're seeking Christ. And what we're seeing here before our eyes is something many Christian parents have faced and many continue to face. The grief of parents who have raised their children with God's help to the best of their ability. They haven't been perfect. There are no perfect parents. But they long to see their kids love and serve and obey God. And when he becomes old enough to be outside his house and on his own, he goes his own way. He does his own thing. And he's making his own choices. And there's nothing he, they can do about it. Many parents know the grief and sorrow and pain of wayward and prodigal children. Seeing their children make decision after decision, and it's contrary to God's word, and you've even seen them suffer the consequences for it. And we all know it is heartbreaking. Now, there's more to be said about that, but how we parent our children is not the main point in the text, and some of these things we could flesh out maybe as we talk with one another later. Not the main point, but it's there. The main point of the entire chapter, in light of Samson rejecting God's word, and violating his vow, and having no regard for his calling, the main point of the entire chapter is in verse 4. His father and mother did not know it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Now listen carefully. What was from the Lord was not that God wanted him to marry a Philistine. Okay? not what it means what was from the lord was the philistines ruled over israel and god was working in all the surrounding circumstances in order to use samson to deliver the israelites the he the pronoun he in the text is not samson okay don't read it this way don't read it like this his father and mother did not know it was from the lord for he samson was seeking an opportunity against the philistines Samson wasn't seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Uh, he, he, he's seeking to party with the Philistines. He's seeking to marry a Philistine. He's not seeking to obey his calling. He's rejecting his calling. He tragically is running from his calling. You read the passage this way. 
His father and mother did not know it was from the Lord, for he, God, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Now, this does not mean that God approved or that God led Samson into sin. James reminds us in James 1, and our ladies just finished this a couple weeks ago in their Bible study, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. Samson's lust was Samson's lust. Samson's sin was Samson's sin. His father and mother, not knowing this was from the Lord, didn't know that God was working and had a plan, even though Samson was wanting to marry an unbeliever. They didn't know that even though he's in sin, God still had a plan to deliver his people from the Philistines through Samson. And even though Samson had begun to reject his cause of Nazarite, even though he wouldn't listen to his parents, even though he disobeyed God and wanted to marry outside Israel, even though he was in sin, God still used Samson's sinful life for his glory to accomplish his good and sovereign purposes. What that means is God, as he has throughout the book of Judges, uh, throughout history, was using his sinful servant to fulfill his desire to save Israel. That God's purposes can never be thwarted. He rules over everyone and everything. He raised up Samson to save Israel, and he will, even though right now he's not keeping his vow or following him. Now, we have a tremendous advantage of understanding the, the passage and the big picture of what's going on because we're actually reading the story. But Manoah and his wife are without the information that we have. So they go to bed at night in tears and in sorrow and in grief and in mourning over the rebellion of their wayward son. They don't see this as something that God will use. They see only what's in front of them, nothing but pain and nothing but failure and nothing but heartache. But let me encourage you parents who may have wayward children, do not ever forget that only God knows what's going on in the heavenlies. There are things in this life we have no understanding from from our finite perspective. It's likely that Manoah and his wife went to their grave, grieving over their son, and they never saw the end result. They didn't know that God was working behind the scenes, even in the sinful activity of their son. But we know, and we know too, that God is working in the sinful activities of our unbelieving children. So trust him. Rest in him. Continue to cry out to him. The final chapter has not been written. And you may not even see it. But you can trust in a sovereign, loving, gracious God who works all things for his glory. So Samson's set apart at birth. He's under a vow, called to deliver Israel. And from the time of his early adulthood, 
He violates his vow. He doesn't pursue his calling. He disobeys God, loves a pagan woman, rejects his commands, rejects the counsel of his parents. And by all rights, much like the nation of Israel, at this moment, he could and he should be judged for his sin. As we all should. Remember, the soul that sins, it shall die. Instead, in verse 5, as they're going down to the vineyards of Timnia, instead of being killed by a roaring lion that rushed upon him, which is what he deserved, instead of being killed, the Spirit of God rushes upon him, and he tears the lion into pieces as one would tear a young goat. He gave him grace. He gave him mercy. And he gave him the strength to save himself from a wild animal. Like the nation of Israel, he saved him even when he wasn't seeking help. Demonstrating again, as he has in the past, that he's kind and he's gracious. And he is so long-suffering to Samson and to us. But along with his long-suffering, this is also designed to affirm his calling. To show him that the strength that he had to tear the lion that came directly from God is the strength that he will have to save Israel. This was an incredible supernatural strength. I mean, just tearing a roaring lion apart with your bare hand. Now, most of the images that people have of Samson, you know, he's, he's kind of a Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, the, you young people don't even know who that is. Yeah, so uh, um, who's the guy? The Rock, thank you very much. Thank you. He, he, in fact, I Googled, again, images of Samson. And every, every picture, every portrait, every painting is, is this muscular individual who's big and strong and, and everything else. But clearly, that is not what Samson looked like. He was as normal as you and I. If you're already a muscle man, then how would God get any glory to fill a muscular man to become strong. And so even though he's in sin, even though he's going his own way, even though he's doing what's right in his own eyes, God is still using him for his glory. And as the story continues, he will begin to deliver Israel. Through God's power, he kills a lion that could have killed him. And like Israel, instead of being thankful, instead of being drawn to God, Instead of serving God and worshiping God, he continues in his rejection of God by going back to Timnah, meeting the girl, and verse 7 states she was right in Samson's eyes. Now, the text doesn't say, but he must have gone home. Their wedding plans were taken care of, and then he returns to Timnah to take her. And while he does, he violates another part of the Nazarite vow by going back to the dead lion, noticing the bees that have been inside the carcass, he takes honey out of the dead animal, not only eats it on the way to his wedding, but when he sees his parents, he gives some to them. And verse 9 tells us he didn't tell them where he got the honey. And it's the touching of the dead animal that violates his vow. And the fact that he didn't tell his parents that the honey came from something that was part of him, defiling himself, just affirms again his, his own deceit his own disobedience, his own secret deceitful heart, even against his parents, which obviously is against God. They never knew, as far as we know, that he violated that part of the vow. 
We as readers know it. And again, it shows a disregard of anything holy, of anything true, of anything right. Samson's a law unto himself, going his own way, doing what is right in his own eyes. And this sets up all that's needed for this seven-day-long wedding feast. Don't you wish you lived in that day? I mean, our weddings, you show up at 10, ceremonies at 1, you eat, you go home by 7. Seven days, what a wonderful time that would be, gathering together with your friends and family to enjoy one another for all that time. But we don't have time for that anymore. In verse 10, they, they follow the Philistine traditions, and they, they plan the feast in Timnah. It's tradition here, to, the groom had to have his own set of attendants. And since Samson didn't have any, they, they gave him 30 men to be with him for the wedding ceremony. The feast that's prepared will be another time for Samson to violate his Nazarite vow because the feast would involve drinking. The word for feast in Hebrew actually means consuming drink. And these 30 young men would be partying with their new friend Samson, and Samson will be the life of the party, and he does this with his song or with his riddle. Let's reread this so we can catch up in verse 13. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you can't tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Now, I, I think it's worth noting that one commentary I read made a real helpful statement here. That, that this riddle is another complete disregard for God and his holiness. It just shows Samson taking light of sin, light of God's word, and light of his vow. It's one thing to sin. It's one thing to break your Nazarite vow. It's one thing to disobey God. But when you turn your own rebellion into a joke, when you use your sin as a riddle to taunt others, that just shows how further you are away from God. Sin is never something to joke about. And Samson ju just doesn't care. Now, we know everyone likes a good riddle. And you don't mind livening things up where you have a good riddle with a little wager. 30 minds coming together to solve this. They're surely thinking that they have seven days. They can figure this out. They, they can discover the riddle. They have a whole week. And then we can all get a free change of clothes. Day one, day two, day three. They just can't figure out the riddle. So they resort to their own evil tactics. Really, as Philistines, showing their own complete disregard for life and decency. They, they really put Samson's new bride in a tough spot. They held her family in ransom, held them in hostage by stating in verse 15, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you in your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? Now, she obviously wanted to protect her family, and she doesn't tell Samson. The only person who knows that Samson had supernatural strength at certain times is Samson. He was alone when he tore 
the lineup. He's just a normal person from her perspective. She didn't tell him anything. Instead, he, she attempts to manipulate him. She says, you hate me. Do not love me because you haven't told me the riddle. She does this from the fourth day to the seventh day and finally wears Samson out. So he tells her the answer and then she tells the 30 men. And, and can't you see him on that last day? Uh, they're smiling. They're happy. They're high-fiving each other. They're slapping each other on the back because they know the answer and they're all going to get a new suit. And they're ready to tell him. They're, again, they've been feasting. They're probably really drunk. They're probably up in his face. And they tell the answer, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? Of course, they got the answer right. The plan worked. They put forth the answer. And Samson knows exactly what they did. So he retorts, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Now, I don't recommend that you use the word heifer to describe someone that you love, unless, it, <laughs> unless you're the Richies and it really is a heifer, okay? <laughs> that, 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 that could be, that could be. But in a, I don't think in this century that calling your wife a heifer was derogatory any more, any, any more than uh, when I tell my wife oftentimes that her neck is like a flock of goats. <laughs> Those of you who know Song of Solomon. So there's idioms in this day that we don't use anymore, and he certainly wasn't being derogatory by any means. They did plow with his heifer in the sense they used her to get the answer. Look at the result in verse 19. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. So by the end of the story, God fulfills his purposes in Samson's life. He begins to deliver Israel from the Philistines. He struck down 30 men in the Philistine town of Ashkelon and gave their clothes to the men who solved the riddle. He goes back home, and his wife is now given to the best man. Now, the story's not over. It continues in chapter 15, but we're going to have to stop. In 15.1, it says, After some days, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat, and he said, I will go in my wife, I will go into my wife in the chamber. You see, because he had gone through the feast and the ceremony, he was technically married to the woman. But because the marriage had not been consummated, he was technically not married to the woman. And now he's given to his best man. She is no longer his. When he lost the wager over the riddle, he killed 30 men. When he officially loses his wife, the body count in chapter 15 will be much higher as the story continues, and we'll see that next week. Now, so much here. What do I want you to leave? I want to leave with just two things. There's more to say. But I just want to mention two. One of them we already talked about a little bit. Do not put yourself in places of temptation. Run, avoid, flee, cut off, tear out. Sin is always an inside job. Sin always starts in your heart. And if, if, if you're not fighting sin, if you're like Samson, putting yourselves in places of temptation, choosing to sin throughout your Christian life, throughout your Christian life, 
then you need to cry out to God to help you. Cry out to God to change your heart. You need, you need to ask the question as to whether or not you even understand salvation. Because if you're truly born again, if you are truly born again, then God has given you a new heart with new desires that involve repenting from your sin and giving up your sin. I'm not saying you won't struggle. We all do. I'm not saying you won't sin. We all do. But in salvation, a fundamental change has taken place in your heart that gives you the grace to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. And if you do sin, true believers sin, if you do sin and you're a true believer, then the Spirit of God will convict you. If you can and do habitually practice sin, you're habitually unkind, you're habitually mean, you're habitually unloving and hateful, habitually impure, habitually even foul-mouthed. There are people who claim to be Christians who, who have foul-mouths. And you have no remorse and no guilt and no shame and no conviction by the Spirit of God. You may not be a believing Christian. I think this calls all of us to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Number one, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Self-examination. Secondly, I think the text, more than anything else, this is a reminder that we can trust in God's sovereignty. Do not forget the verse. His father and mother did not know it was from the Lord, for he, God, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Stop trying to figure out what God's doing and what you think he should do. Isaiah 55 reminds us, for as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my, my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is carrying out his sovereign plans and purposes, whether you and I know it or not. And you can trust him. You can rest in him. You can believe him, even when you can't see. Let me just give you one example of scripture as I close, where nobody would have ever said that this is from the Lord. Familiar story. Remember the people, people who do evil, like Samson, are accountable for their evil. But God uses all things, even evil, and those who do evil, to accomplish his sovereign purposes. Think of Joseph. Sold into slavery by his brothers. They sinned against him. They sinned against his brother Benjamin. They sinned against Jacob. They sinned against Jacob's wife. They sinned against God. All of them were accountable for their sin. And 13 years later, as he's the ruler of Egypt, he tells his brothers, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. God sent me here in front of you to save lives and to save you from the famine. You see, in that case, we know the end result. In many cases, like Manoah and his wife, we don't know. But the scripture calls us to trust anyway. Because God sovereignly works in the affairs of people, even those who do evil, holding them accountable for the evil, and still uses evil and those who do evil to accomplish his sovereign purposes.
We need to be reminded that all these events that take place around us, as awful as they seem, he's always working, always accomplishing, and always doing all that he desires to do. So we bow before him, acknowledging his power, acknowledging his might and his glory, and we give him due praise. Let's pray. Father, if we didn't know from Scripture that you worked in all situations for your glory, then we would have no hope in life or death. God, because you're sovereign and because you rule over all, and because there's so many things that take place in our lives that we don't understand, we find ourselves bowing before you, trusting you, walking with you, asking you to work, begging you to work at the same time, recognizing that since you rule over all things, you have good purposes in mind. And Lord, I pray that anyone who's here this morning who is wrestling with circumstances that seem to be so, so outside the pale of their own normalcy, I just ask you that they would, you'd give them the grace to, to walk by faith and not by sight. We see from Scripture over and over and over that your steadfast love never ceases. mercies never come to an end and we believe that and we trust that and we thank you for it and we thank you father for your mercy and your grace in christ's name we pray amen